Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hello, friends. This is episode 25 of Christians in the Public Square, which means that we've reached the end of season one. Cole and I are taking just a few weeks' break to retool a bit, schedule some new guests and some favorites from this season, and prepare for season two of this podcast. Meanwhile, drop us a message on Twitter, email, Facebook, or Carrier Pigeon, and freely weigh in on topics you'd like for us to address, guests we should invite, or beauty tips that we should employ. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. I'm glad to talk to you again. Hey, you know, I really, uh, I want to reflect on just a, uh, just shortly on Daryl Tippins coming to visit with us. Okay. I didn't, I didn't tell this story when he was in the room with me, but, um, I think I've told you this story before. You know, when I realized I was going to take every class he ever taught was when I was in sophomore lit, um, Daryl was teaching Beowulf and, um, I had not read Beowulf as assigned. <laughs> so I showed up to class and um, I took the quiz and failed it, of course. Uh, and then Daryl taught, he lectured on Beowulf. And I was so enraptured. I went home and read it. I wasn't going to get any credit for it. I wasn't going to get any, but I was, I just wanted to read the story because he seemed to he seemed to be so lit up by it. And as I've gotten older, I thought, you know, that's good pedagogy. That's a good teacher. Somebody who inspires you to read something even when you don't you don't get remunerated with grades. Man, that is well said because I can tell you now, we have to remind ourselves in the Department of Language and Literature where I teach that students come to school for a lot of reasons, Mostly it's to get grades, and sometimes we have the idealistic, they're here to learn about great literature and how to write well, Um, but sometimes we're reminded they're not, so a story like that is quite, I'm heartened to hear that. It's the power of of good teaching. You know, I, I remember it a lot when I'm thinking about what does it mean for me to be a good teacher, and... I think he's the greatest teacher ever, and that anecdote is a part of the reason why I, I think that way. Maybe we should have an episode one day where we just talk about great teachers. <laughs> That's a great idea. I've actually <laughs> thought about a Facebook post where I list my greatest teachers, and it's a long list, man. I had some great ones. And we're just trying to be on someone else's list one day, aren't we, Scott? Y- yeah. Yeah, really, I think about doing the list so that my students create one and put me at the top of it. Right. That's really what it's all about. That's what it's about. Hey, what are we going to talk about today? Well, first, let's rehearse our three tenets. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay, the first one is that sacred cows make delicious barbecue. We will scoff at orthodoxy whenever we please. That's right, but along the way... We will vociferously and earnestly plead for our own flag flying proudly. That's right. We'll argue vigorously for our point of view as long as we have it. Right. And among all that, we are first bros before politicos. And that means we're brothers first and everything else we figure out as we go. That's right. 
Today, uh, we're going to talk about a subject that was um, we discovered accidentally while we were having a conversation a few weeks ago that we had in common, but in a very different way, wouldn't you say, Scott? Uh, I would we're say. Gonna, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be talking about mainly a book by Paul Bloom, who is at Yale. He's a psychologist at Yale University. The book is entitled Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. And I happened to mention to Scott a few weeks ago, hey, do you know this book called Against Empathy? Because I think it's really great. And Scott said... That's the only book I have ever returned to Amazon. (laughs) So we both have some strong feelings. I think that that the book is very compelling. I think the topic is very compelling. Um, he, Paul Bloom has written for The Atlantic, and uh, we'll have some links on the show notes for you to see where he has talked about this subject in a very short video. I'll even, so I'll even assent to put the link to Amazon for the book. I, I will confess that I read it. I didn't read it. I listened to it uh, on Audible, and I cannot recommend. It's the only time I've gone to Audible and asked for my, for my credit back, and I felt like do you remember on Seinfeld when uh, Kramer tried to return the peach? You know, bad peach is an act of God. It's not my problem, you know. I thought for sure that Audible would react the same way and they'd be like, hey, dude, this uh, it's just a credit. But they gave me my credit back. I, I do think the reason I mentioned that it was done on Audible is, you know, there is the oral interpretation of the reader. And uh, having heard Bloom subsequently heard Bloom in his own voice, uh, I get a different feel than I did from the person who read his text. So I may have had an, a layer of interpretation added that I found distasteful as well. But Well, we thought the best way to proceed today was for me to very, very briefly summarize. Um, I, I can't do justice to the whole book and wouldn't want to just give everything away because that's not cool. But it, just to summarize one of the main points and give what I think is a compelling example of why I feel so strongly that um, Bloom is onto something, and then ask Scott to start clarifying his position and asking questions, and we'll have a dialogue from there. Hit it. Okay, well, in general, um, empathy is of virtue. It's not a vice. I mean, who who wants to say empathy's bad? Who wants to say that it's not something a person should hold up in his or her toolkit of characteristics when dealing with other people? And so empathy is not bad in itself, but Bloom argues that uh, it is a bad warrant upon which to make policy decisions, and often uh, to make personal decisions. And the reason is he lists, he lists three problems, and he doesn't say these are the only three, but three reasons for this that he gives and discusses, is that first, um, leading with empathy creates bias by shining a spotlight on singular cases. So... Um, and I'll list them all and, and then return to them. And number two, it distorts logic by highlighting, highlighting the one versus the many. 
And third, it can be weaponized, by which I mean, by which he means it can be uh, manipulated by unscrupulous actors and rhetors to persuade people toward making choices that are ultimately bad. So I have biases, you know, uh, I am a male, I'm an English teacher, I am a Texan, um, I'm a Christian, and so uh, having empathy, highlight, bringing empathy to the forefront of, of my decisions leads me to a biased position. Um, and I think most people who've studied studied rhetoric, understand. In fact, we teach this to all freshmen, and we're finding out now that they're teaching it quite a bit in high school, the different persuasive appeals of ethos, logos, and pathos. And I think his articulation of the second problem, that it distorts logic by highlighting the one versus the many, um, it is an ethical argument to say you should be persuaded by what I am saying because I have the character and authority. I have been in the place to make this argument. I have the creds. And so if you put that forward at all times when you're trying to make decisions, you are, you are therefore devaluing pathos arguments and logos arguments automatically. And that's not a healthy way to make decisions. And so he lists those three very quickly um, just to get the ball rolling on, on why it can be bad, why it is bad to lead with empathy. Now, let me give you a really quick and very timely example, okay? <clears throat> In fact, uh, I'll give you two examples, and the first one is as old as time, and that is many an argument has been made for the United States to enter into military action by showing and discussing and lifting up examples of people suffering in other countries around the world that we are trying to liberate. Just understand, viewer, how hungry or how ill or how oppressed um, people are in the Middle East where we therefore need to take action because don't you see, you've been hungry, you know what hunger is like, you've been ill, you know what illness is like, and there's no relief, so we must act. That's a common argument to take a country into war, and it ignores how much it costs financially to go to war. It ignores the mechanisms by which we, the United States, declare war, and it also ignores our soldiers who will be harmed or perhaps get killed in um, taking up these causes. That's a time that's, as, that's an example that's as old as time. You with me so far? So far. Okay. And another one, um, I have been, and this is so new that I hope that I have thought through it enough, but just this week, uh, I'm talking to Scott from... Oxford, England, where I am here in a study abroad capacity, there has the Scottish Parliament has declared this week that it's going to pay um, for feminine hygiene products f across the board, countrywide. 
So it was already being provided in schools and colleges and universities. Um, but they, the arguments that were put forth, um, they're using a term called period poverty. Uh, here's a quote from the leader of the Women's Equality Party. Period poverty is an issue that affects women and girls across the UK, with more than a quarter having missed work or school because they couldn't afford or didn't have access to menstrual products. And when people were asking questions about this, like, well, how much is this going to cost the government to provide um, these products across the board? Um, the figure they came up with was 31 million pounds a year. And so when people began to feel that they were being challenged on this, they immediately went to, let me explain to you several anecdotes of young girls being embarrassed uh, by their bodies and how we need to spend this money because it is it is necessary to avoid embarrassment in these 700 ways. And, and there was quite a bit of dialogue about how young girls were embarrassed over this issue. And so uh, my point is that is everyone knows what it's like to be embarrassed. Everyone knows what it's like to feel shame, uh, especially women, and especially remembering themselves as young girls. And the arguments that were being made were arguments of empathy. We must avoid this type of embarrassment and, uh, for these young girls. And we feel that this is the way forward. And there was not very much talk at all about how is this going to be paid for, how much is it going to cost, etc. Whether that was a good way forward. And so Bloom's point um, it can be essentialized, I think, by saying he's, he's writing against the listen to me because I've been in that very situation argument. It should not invalidate pathos and logos. And he, is, uh, he indicts politicians from both sides of the aisle in the United States by saying liberals and conservatives both do this. They both lift up the case of Joe the plumber or they lift up some anecdotal case and say, doesn't this, haven't you felt this way? And once you realize you have, then let's enact this policy and he says that is a poor way uh, to move forward. Okay, so that's kind of the broad strokes of the argument. And to me, uh, I would say that that scratches me a lot where I itch because I think so much policy is made poorly for that reason. But you, let me let you respond uh, if, to see if you want to add anything to the argument as you see it, to, his, to, that, to that summary. No, I think that's a great summary of his thesis and, and the way he kind of unpacks his thesis. Um, my, my initial criticism really centers around the use of the term empathy. And I really believe that he kind of creates a straw man uh, in defining empathy so that it's easy to knock, knock it over. Um, because he defines empathy very, very narrowly as feeling someone else's pain. 
Um, and that, it, that that is something that happens to us. It is non-rational. Um, and so he kind of has a, and I understand why a cognitive scientist would think this way, but he has this um, kind of causal chain. I feel someone else's pain. I want to alleviate that pain. And so I act irrationally to solve the problem because I feel pain. Um, and from a strictly biological, consequential perspective, I guess that works. But I don't think that's what empathy is. I think he's failed. In fact, he spends the first two chapters saying, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying the other. I'm not talking about this thing. Well, at some point, he creates a very, very narrow, thin sliced straw man definition of what empathy is. And then uh, he... he uh, he lights it on fire and dances around it as though he's doing something novel. Secondly, this, this criticism of empathy is of his narrow definition of empathy is not new. It's old. Uh, and I mean, I'm not going to go way back, but this is what Thoreau is arguing against in on Walden. He's, he's claiming that the city folk in town have um, satiated themselves uh, their consciences on charity, and it has become a fashionable exercise. Um, Ayn Rand, a, a lot of libertarians don't recognize that uh, you know, she's arguing against this idea of charity, that charity is fundamentally bad. So a lot of where I think Bloom is coming from is not necessarily new. If you're going to thin slice what empathy is and just only doing charity for non-rational reasons um, or for irrational reasons. The second thing I'm really, I, I, I think you did a fine job of kind of bringing out the three major categories of his objection. One has to do with our biases that, that we engage in those feelings uh, through a, a set of biases the second being uh, that we focus on individual cases rather than the uh, maybe true patterns. And the third, that it can be weaponized. Well, you know what? So can your faith, Cole. All those things can also be true of your faith. And if, if, the, if everything that he said is true of this thin definition of what empathy is, it can also be true of your own, I'm saying Cole Bennett's faith. And I don't accept that that is always the case. I do accept that it happens, but I don't accept that it is always the case. Talk to me about what you're hearing. Yeah, well, let me just say really quickly that I think Rand, Ayn Rand's objection to charity is not about empathy. I think it was based on other things. Would you agree or do we need to go down? Uh, no, 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 no. I think you're absolutely right. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, i I think charity is an extension of his discussion. Bloom's discussion on charity is an extension of a position of, uh, of empathy. Um, and uh, I think Rand had other problems with charity as an exercise. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to see if we were clear on that. Uh, I, I want to say to our listeners that I agree completely that he has defined empathy in some narrow ways and he takes the trouble during the first part of his book to do that. And I think Scott, wouldn't you agree? That's my that's my 
a rhetorical strategy to get you to say yes that you agree with me. <laughs> yeah. But what you agree that we are at an exigency point in 2020 for this topic, though it was mentioned by Thoreau early on uh, and others, quite frankly, and Bloom kind of references some people who had treated this in papers and things before his book. But I think, wouldn't you agree that we're in a moment where this has become, uh, where we're using empathy to put forth arguments is a daily political exercise? I do think that there is, um, uh, listen, I think we always, I think we always blame media for everything that's happening in the last 20, 30 years. But I do think media is a part of this. When you used to watch only the six o'clock news with your legs folded, you know, in front of the television, um, they had a half an hour to tell you what happened today. That doesn't leave a lot of room for individual narratives, um, specific stories of interest. It doesn't leave a lot of room for um, thinking about the way that this affects, you know, the Smith family in Terre Haute, Indiana. You really only got within the, those 30 minutes a broad strokes view of what's going on in the world. Uh, that's a very different experience than even on my own NPR station. I listen to, I have available three hours worth of news in the morning and then another three hours in the afternoon. And the programming that's involved with that kind of six hours of, that's just morning edition and all things considered, let alone all of the other uh, news programming through the middle of the day. That's a lot of space to fill. And there's a lot of stories to tell to fill that space. Um, you know, I, I think of this almost every time I watched the um, Beverly and I gave up our, we cut the cord. So we don't have news anymore coming into the house, which was an intentional choice because that's all I would, I'd sometimes accidentally just watch news for 12 hours. <laughs> that explains a lot. Yeah, but I'll, I'll tell you this, that whenever there was a mass shooting, there's kind of a recipe that the news channels follow, which is to tell you what's happening and then to ask all the people they can get who are experts, you know, the same four questions. But then they need to find witnesses and people who have experienced that. I mean, they've got to fill in the space while they're, you know, while they're covering this, uh, this event for 18 hours straight. And so there is a lot of room for individual narrative and individual narrative does provide a lot of color. And I think that because of that, um, it's possible to see those narratives as not just illustrative, but actually uh, descriptive, right? That what's happening to the Smith family in Terre Haute, Indiana, describes the phenomenon rather than as an anecdotal representation of it. Okay, I let me push back about that against that just for a bit. Go ahead, yeah. Your question was, is it possible to see that is as illustrative or uh, anecdotal? What did you say? Illustrative or what, or what else? Or descriptive. Descriptive. The answer is yes, it's possible. But I'm going to push back, especially against NPR. In fact, I had that written down, and here you are um, actually actually saying it, which is good. Um during All Things Considered, their afternoon program, I would argue that 
that's probably the most listened to program they have in a day. People are driving to work, sometimes listening to Morning Edition. And um, and I'm sorry, Scott, I, I was... Okay, people are listening to Morning Edition while they drive to work and probably listening to All Things Considered in the afternoon, more so. And I have no data for that. I'm just sort of thinking about the people I know and how they listen. Would you concede that? Oh, yeah. Okay, so... I'm remembering a discussion you and I had perhaps six years ago. Can you believe that? That's how closely I listened to Scott Sell. Uh, <laughs> six years ago, and I really don't think this is any exaggeration the way I'm characterizing this, but NPR came on with a story about the minimum wage discussion. Let's talk about the minimum wage discussion and then that people are trying to put forth um, – legislation to change it. Maria works in Los Angeles as a as at a full-time job where she cleans airplanes. She works 40 hours a week at through the, through the whole day picking up trash when airplanes land and cleaning this and cleaning that. And let's hear from Maria. And they put a microphone to Maria who says, "I work very hard. I work full-time. Um, it's just me and my four children." And at the end of the month, I don't even have enough money to buy them candy. Back to the NPR person. Now we have talked about the minimum wage issue. And to me, that is, that is nothing short of horrible reporting. Because that is not the only thing to... Maria is not the only thing to consider when it comes to talking about the effects of the minimum wage. There are hundreds of questions that I would ask Maria if I were interviewing her, if my goal was trying to understand a minimum wage. I don't think NPR's goal was trying to provide a rounded picture of the minimum wage debate. I think that they had other agendas at hand that were best served by briefly introducing the topic and interviewing Maria. And I would say that is uh, that many listeners hearing that, particularly progressives, are using empathy to say, well, we must have some kind of a change in policy because Maria cannot live her life under the current situation. Okay, I think you just stepped in the same pile of goo that Bloom is in, which is you assume that that is all the listener is responding to. I, That's I mean, all if the you listener have, is given. If you if you if you uh, if you want to say that that has an influence, or that maybe we need to be careful about leading, and I know he gives that kind of nuance. We don't, and I think if you want to focus there, that's one thing. But to say that that only has the effect of causing the listener to believe that it is a problem because uh, this this one instance, um, I think you are really selling your audience short. If nothing else, it may be that it adds a dimension to the way I think about the minimum wage issue. It doesn't necessarily have to be definitive. I don't. You're making broad assumptions about what's happening to me, the listener, as a function of that kind of reporting. Well, number one, I do not believe that you can use that segment to argue that NPR is trying to treat the topic of minimum wage in California. That is not what they are trying to do. 
That is not a piece of reporting that's trying to say this is the state of things, which I believe is, um, if I can use the term hard news, I believe that's what a hard news hour is supposed to do. Instead, it was uh, something else. So I don't think every listener who hears that is hook, line, and sinker drawn in. My goal is not to say um, this is how listeners responded. My goal is to say a rhetorical analysis of this piece in the hard news section is not, in fact, hard news. Mm -hmm. It has an agenda, and it is being paid for by taxpayers, and I resent it. And it fits what, what I think it fits perfectly with Bloom's um, idea of they're leading with an empathetic argument rather than a what he calls rational compassion, which would ask other questions like, Maria, are you able to move out of California to a much less expensive place to live? Uh, do you have the father of your children? Is he paying his share of child support? If not, are you pursuing that through legal channels? Um, with a hundred other questions that would that would perhaps lead me to believe that the minimum wage is not Maria's biggest problem. It might be, but it might not be. You see what I mean? I can care about Maria and engage in rational compassion, but I don't think the best response to Maria is to say, I am torn to shreds that she cannot uh, have any money left over at the end of the month for her kids, and therefore I should try to enact legislation to change that. Okay. What you're actually arguing here is a weaponization. It's not weaponization in the most drastic sense, but what you're actually arguing here is that empathy is being used, or, or Bloom's narrow definition of empathy. I'll just stop with that preamble, and just as we're talking about empathy today, we're talking about Bloom's definition. But you're talking about how the empathy can be then weaponized, right, to the uh, in a rhetorical manner. Well, I think it, it hits all three problems. It creates bias. It distorts logic. And it can be weaponized. I think, in fact, being weaponized is the thing that it is least doing in this instance. It's a weak weapon. But I'm just saying it's it, – uh, I'm not talking about in a, in a war sense or military sense. I'm talking about just as um, a rhetorical tool to to force Cole to uh, to try and change Cole's point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can right? see that. And I guess, I guess that that is possible. Um, I guess that's an interpretation. I think you're making some broad assumptions, though, that 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 is the reason why that is being done. You think I'm assuming things about NPR? Probably. And I, I don't want uh, I don't want to say I have a lockdown on NPR's motives. I'm just trying to analyze that one piece of rhetoric. Yeah, I understand that. Um uh, my kids are missionaries in Peru, and when they um, were in Africa, they were um, assigned some reading by one of their mentors, who told them that, told them to read the book uh, "When Helping Hurts." Yeah, and um, I read that book in between visits uh, to see the kids in Africa, um, and I saw firsthand the ways that one's own empathy. Uh, even in this definition, can create great harm. Um, there was one instance where 
one of the people on a visit with us had seen a man who was uh, trying to start a business and they gave him a hundred dollars. hundred dollars is a lot of money in that, in the bush and um, gave him a hundred dollar bill. The problem was that he did not realize that there are a significant number of consequences that come from that form of charity, not simply for the man who, uh, who received the hundred dollars, but also for the village and the kinds of resentment that come about, the disruption that has to the um, uh, to the village cohesion. Um, and so this well-meaning person is trying to do good um, because he feels something for another person. He, and he has money, and this other person could use it. You know, 100 bucks is not that. I mean, I don't want to throw him away, but I don't mind giving it to somebody, you know? <laughs> right, right. Uh, it made a big impact on this other guy. Um, I think I think there are two things that bother me about Bloom's observation of that transaction. And the one thing is that he assumes the only reason that my friend gave the hundred dollars was to satiate his own sense of pain. And I think that is a very limited and unfair definition of what he was actually doing in that transaction. There were a lot of other possibilities, and knowing my friend, I know what he was. He thought I have somebody else needs. I'll, I'll react. It was a rational thing. Um, the other, my other concern is you can wave your hands at that transaction and say it's bad because the consequences are bad. You know, and it has these consequences. It affects the village. It has these consequences because it causes disruption. It has these consequences because it causes disruption even within the individual. Those things are all possibly true. Um, but I would actually argue that what's required here is not less empathy, but more empathy. Um, I think where Bloom messes up is that he has so thinly defined what empathy is as to suggest that we should not use it and instead use something that he terms as compassion or rational compassion. Um, I think real empathy as a virtue is not merely feeling somebody else's pain, but is in fact thinking critically. It is thinking rationally. It is understanding that there are consequences for how I react to someone else's pain, and I need to think about those consequences. I need to think about whether I'm helping or hurting. Um, well, I, let me just interrupt you and say I think Bloom would agree with you completely, except he would say you are now defining cognitive empathy rather than what he calls the empathy that he's criticizing. I think at some point Bloom has not only has created kind of a straw man when it comes to the definition of what empathy is. But he's also created a straw man within our culture and caricaturized what charity is driven by, caricaturized why people do what they do. And I think this is where he stops being a cognitive science scientist and starts becoming a kind of pundit where he's offering a cultural criticism and that cultural criticism is criticism of a caricature. Do people fit that caricature? Sure. Um, you know, are there are there people who 
you know, without question, uh, give money on the, on the, you know, to someone standing on the corner at the stoplight because they have a sign that says we'll work for food and he, and you roll down your window and you give them money so that you feel better about your day. Sure. Those people exist. Sure. People do that, but that's a thin slice. That's a thin slice of what people are doing. Um, and I remember a time when I gave a guy five bucks for holding a sign on the on the corner at a stoplight. Did I ever tell you this story? I don't know. There's a guy in uh, Dallas at Dallas. You know, there's the access road um, to the tollway and Alpha right there by the Galleria. I don't know yes, why the location's yes. important, but that's where it was. There's a great there's, Indian restaurant right around the corner there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a. Uh, so this guy standing there holding a sign. It said, won't even think about working. Need money for beer. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, all right, all right. And uh, yeah. And by the way, I have biblical uh, uh, reasons for giving my money to that man because the scriptures tell us, give, uh, give wine to the man who is suffering and strong drink to the man in pain. <laughs> if you don't believe me, say- look it up. We're going to have a parental advisory on this episode, so if your children are about the house, please uh, skip over that part. Go ahead. Yeah, I think I think Bloom can look at that activity and and assume that I rolled down my window and gave the man money because he was standing on a street corner and I was feeling his pain and I wanted to satiate that pain. I think you could describe it in that limited, narrow, uh, caricaturized form. That's not at all what happened in this case. I just wanted to be able to tell the story when I got to work about how funny it was, right? Uh, it was for a totally different purpose than feeling someone's pain. And and if you want to say we shouldn't lead with that, but it can be okay as a part of our uh, the way we think about uh, world problems, okay, maybe. But I, I just think that the, the entire argument assumes a great deal about the audience, and it's where he becomes less of a scientist and more of a pundit, is all I'm saying. Okay. I have a mouthful to say. Go. <clears throat> My mouthful to say is this. I think that it is, and I would argue strongly that it is not a caricature, but it is an accurate description to say that the empathy as he defines it is rampantly leading our society. And I'll tell you why. We are as a nation over $20 trillion in debt. And when the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration decided to bail out huge auto companies and huge financial companies, and they were pressed in front of cameras to explain why they were doing that at taxpayer expense, they routinely said, well, the number of people who would be thrown out of work and who would lose their jobs, not just at auto plants, but at dealerships and at parts suppliers and service departments, Car wash guys, I mean, they went down the line talking about how incredibly awful it would be for people to lose their jobs. And that's where they started, and that's where they stopped with their explanation, because that was enough for them to say, of all the things that can happen in our society, we can't have people losing their jobs. 
And that is true of Democrats and Republicans who have placed our country in horrible national debt. And I know that there are people who think national debt is a boring topic that doesn't matter. And I think those people in their lifetimes, if they're listening to this podcast at less than retirement age, they will see the consequences of that national debt. And everything, um, when you and I manage our household expense, I would love nothing more than to drive an Aston Martin. And but I know that I cannot afford that, even though I want it. And no one runs their household in that kind of in that kind of crushing debt if they have other things going on in their critical decision making than I must have this and I can't let this happen. And so, hold on. And so I think. That Bloom, that's what I meant when I said the exigency of his argument is, is plainly visible to me, and he is not using caricature because of how much our current policies at the state and federal level reflect people leading with their empathetic sense. Okay. I, I Really, I think that that's a less valuable example. Um, I do think that there is, you know, when he says feeling other people's pain, you know, it comes to my mind as a, as a phrase, Bill Clinton. Yeah. And, and he, he mentions that in the book. If there is an illustration of how this does work, um, how this system that, that he's described actually happens, the, uh, causal chain, uh, uh, I think you can describe, at least in part, Bill Clinton's statement, I feel your pain, had strong, strong rhetorical impact upon the electorate. Uh, that came at a unique time. I actually analyzed that uh, with my uh, professor. I was in a PhD program at the time, and we were... Um, we were analyzing, she was analyzing the rhetoric in debates and uh, the discourse discourse markers in the debate. And so we were analyzing that. So we used that um, as data. There were other things also happening at the time. There were other discourse markers, I think, that uh, really illustrated that um, Bill Clinton understood the audience and George Bush didn't. In fact, right. George Bush at one point said, I don't understand what you mean. And then that's when Bill Clinton said, I feel your pain. Not only that, but he stands up and he walks toward the person. There are all kinds of discourse markers that um, I think play into that. But I do think that largely the electorate, uh, at least the movable electorate, saw that and thought, oh, here's a guy who, f- who feels my pain, who understands what I'm, what I'm going through. And I like that. Um, that is actually uh, the opposite direction of the causal chain that Bloom proposes, which is that I feel pain and so I act irrationally to solve someone else's pain. And much of what was happening there was that Bill Clinton was trying to convince you he feels your pain and that he will do things about it. So it was the opposite, opposite causal chain. But I, I, I will say that the reason he does that is because that's how – at least some people think, and he believes that that can be useful. And apparently, I mean, it did truck 
it's what it's what captured our attention in the debate um, at the time. But I'm really, really, really suspicious. I think I said this last time with Daryl. I'm really suspicious when a virtue is either used uh, for the sake of a particular position or is, um, in this case, abused for the sake of a particular position. I don't understand how the only consequence of empathy is national debt. More empathy for my neighbor, uh, for my um, uh, for my remote neighbor, for my collective neighbor, might be to actually think about the debt, make sure that my kids or my grandkids or my the friends of my kids and my grandkids. Uh, don't experience immense debt. Maybe I could feel their pain. My point being, it's not so much a question of ending empathy. It's a question of expanding empathy and having more empathy and recognizing that these, you know, the, the mistake my friend made in the bush when he gave $100 to, to one individual was he didn't have enough empathy for the other people in the village for what that consequence was going to bring for them. And and then if he gave $100 bills to everybody in the village, what kind of disruption that could have for that village within its larger community or the individuals amongst each other? The problem is not that there's too much empathy. The problem is that there's not enough. Well, I think I think that he would say, Bloom would say, the problem is that it's not critical empathy. And he gives an example of people who say, um, you know, I, I want to give donations to this charity because I like to help kids. And when you explain to them or when they, you present them with information that it's not a very good charity and so much of the money goes to things that don't help kids, but maybe to running the organization or fundraising or salaries or whatever, and you could actually help kids a lot more by giving to this organization over here that boxes up food, the person will say, yes, but I want to give money to kids. <laughs> Because they are not, yeah, 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 they're not yeah. doing what you're saying. Yeah. And um, and when I say that the problem is national debt, I I mean through all of the things we have done policy wise to try, leading with our empathetic sense, we have created an unsustainable financial situation with our country. So um, part of the reason why I was so. Um, angry as I read this, or as I listened to this book, I got to keep, I got to keep uh, adjusting that as I listened to the book, um, is I was at the time working on, I still am, but working on this concept of empathy as a learning outcome as a teacher, you know, what does it mean to teach empathy and should we teach empathy? And if we did, how would we measure it? How would we just, how would you operationalize that term pedagogically? Um, and then I've become convinced that it is something that I am interested in teaching in my classroom, particularly with my undergraduates. Um, I'm interested, uh, my graduates as well. I, uh, but I, I had a student, uh, recently, uh, who, who had an assignment that I, I had created as part of this, part of this question I asked the student to, I asked all of my students to write an essay about something they believed in firmly and then try to imagine why someone would disagree with them. And um, this one student wrote, 
I believe abortion is wrong, gave some reasons, and then said, as for people who disagree with me, I couldn't care less. And um, that was half the rubric (laughs) was to respond to part two. And I gave the student a zero on that part. And I felt justified in doing so. (laughs) I felt justified in doing so because you cannot act rationally without empathy. I don't think you can have a critical discussion without feeling the other person's pain. Is that all you should do? No, 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 no. That's not all you should do. But I don't think that you can actually begin understanding the other side of an argument that you couldn't care less about until you start feeling that other person's pain. Is that give you, does that, is that the summary of, uh, of understanding the other person's uh, point of view? Absolutely not. And if that's the place you're going to stop, then Bloom's right. You should keep going. But this idea that you can't lead with empathy, as Bloom defines it, I think ignores how, um, how we actually get to a place of understanding. It starts with trying to feel the other person's pain. And staying on abortion for a moment, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to change their names, but they're people you know from Hawaii. I was having a Bible study one Wednesday night. For some reason, we were talking about this, the subject of abortion came up, and it was a discussion class, so I'm kind of just sitting there watching the discussion unfold and trying to figure out when and where I kick in and, and how. And one sister said something pretty brutal about people who get abortions, something that was uh, – I know it was brutal insofar as uh, the reaction that it, that it incited, but – she said something on the order of, I just don't understand people who get abortions. Don't they uh, love Jesus? You know, don't they want to go to heaven? Something like that, you know. And I get emotional when I tell this story. Sister Kayuna was sitting next to her. Irene Kayuna was heavy set, a Japanese woman. Uh, she'd lived in Hawaii her whole life. Uh, Irene would say whatever was on her mind. Uh <laughs> She, if something came to her mind, it came out of her mouth. She's sitting right next to this other sister. And Irene said, I wouldn't get one abortion, which is pigeon for, I had an abortion. And the other sister turned to her. They're sitting right next to each other. And the other sister turned to her and said, forgive me. Hmm. And hugged her. And I watched that moment with such awe. And I'm going to tell you why it, I'll call her Sister Smith. Sister Smith's reaction and asking, forgive me, was the opposite of everything she had said a few seconds ago, which, which would have suggested that she turn around and said to, the, said to uh, Irene, I forgive you, or I hope God forgives you, mm-hmm. or ask God to forgive you. That's not what Sister Smith said. She said, forgive me. And my heart was torn open in that moment. It was a holy, holy moment. And what Sister Smith was doing in turning to Irene and saying, forgive me, is she was feeling her sister's pain. Whether that leads to understanding, whether that leads to dialogue, um, 
I think it's important. I, I don't think you stop there. And if that's what Bloom wants to say, well, I just mean don't stop there. Fine. I'm telling you, I think that's where understanding starts. I think understanding Maria's story of her experience with living at minimum wage is important for you as a starting place so that you don't forget how these policies actually play out. I think it's, it's irrational. It is irrational to remove that experience of someone else's pain as a starting place for a deeper conversation. If you want to say it's just where we shouldn't end, okay, but that's not actually what his thesis was. His thesis was it is bad. And I say your thesis is bad. Well, I want to make sure that I say in order to clarify, I'm using the language lead with empathy. He would say if he were sitting here, overemphasize empathy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Okay. And I I in my language as a person who teaches rhetoric would say ethos and pathos and logos are all important and arguments have different mixes of all three of those we should not make our decisions and our policy decisions for the state we live in either as christians or non-christians by always or usually overemphasizing one of them because that leads to a place that's not healthy and I think too that you know it, it, there is a lazy man's way of doing this, which is just to believe whatever they whatever NPR puts in front of you. And I think that you're you're justified in your criticism of saying, listen, if that's the only story you hear, we're in trouble, right? I I think that a good listener, I think, and 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 I really believe that we as Christians should be the best listeners. But a good listener says, that's an interesting story. I'm going to listen to that. I feel your pain. Who else? Who else is involved in this story and who else do I need whom else do I need to listen to? Right? Uh I think do I do I need to listen to my my buddy Cole and the way he feels about me just constantly coming back and dipping into his pocket? Um is it okay for me to have empathy for the billionaires and 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 to think that they're constantly being derided as though they um as though they earned their wealth through ill-gotten gain or that we deserve some of what they some of what they have. I think it's fair to ask, shouldn't I have empathy for a broader group of people? That is entirely fair. And if the criticism is we just uh and and Bloom does make this criticism to some degree because he he's actually getting I think to an important point which is why do I feel badly for um I'm thinking about those uh, television commercials that come on late at night mm -hmm. with Sally Struthers, you know. Yes. Um, why does that move me? But I'm not moved to actually c care about the global climate conditions that have created uh, food scarcity in entire continents. You know, why don't I care about that? And I think that's fair. I think that's fair. If, if, if you want to say um, that I don't, care enough or I don't feel enough pain or experience enough concern or hear enough stories, that is a different criticism. And that's one I think I, I think he makes as a sub-argument that I can hear and and agree to is we actually you you do need to bring your brain to this discussion um, and not merely react to whatever immediate moment um, is in front of you, but 
but to think critically. I think thinking critically is asking, have I um, understood the pain of a wide enough swath of people? I think that's sometimes the question to ask. Uh, Sometimes if I have never experienced a particular pain, I can still proceed with a way forward, a policy decision that to me makes complete sense. And I would have a hard time being convinced that the, that there is a problem in that I have not experienced a certain pain. You know, if I've never been, if I've never been fired from a factory job, I can still say that bailouts are hurtful, harmful to the country and that we should not participate in them. And I don't think my argument is less valid because I've never lost a factory job. Yeah, I can hear that. I also want to say something generous to Bloom that I think, um, because I've been harsh. I do think that the consequences of poor critical thinking, even in the context of how we think about charity and how we think about empathy, the consequences of weaponizing empathy, as Bloom defines it, uh, are much more drastic in our context than it was in Thoreau's context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in Thoreau's context, it's a village who just managed to um, satiate their own sense of uh, of duty maybe lose a little bit in terms of a sense of self-sufficiency, and so he goes off and grows his own beans. That is a different problem than creating entire policies, national policies, or taking a group of soldiers to war under emotional pretenses. In a media culture, in a global culture where we're in everybody else's business and thinking about what's happening to everybody else, the consequences for for uncritical empathy or for empathy poorly done are pretty are pretty significant and can be much more severe than they were for I think for Thoreau. Yes, I think that's very well stated. And I think I as a libertarian am much more alarmed right now that they have been poorly used than you as a socialist, libertarian socialist, would say. I think, I think the left is much less alarmed than financial conservatives. And yeah, financial- I, 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 I do want to say, I, I kind of poo-pooed your idea of um, <laughs> using the auto bailout as an example. There were other arguments that were going on at the same time that tapped into my rationality as well which were, if we close the plants, there are going to be all these people out of work. They're going to come to the government and ask for money. And we won't have, a, we won't have an option. I mean, they'll be taking their, uh, they'll be using federal assistance, and we won't have an option for them to go back to work. And so we're going to be paying this one way or another. Let's pay it in terms of propping up an industry and see if we can't get our money back, which, by the way, Obama did, or... We could, uh, we could allow all these people to go off work, try to figure out how to retrain them, create new industry and, uh, uh, and all of that, and maybe not get our money back. So there was a rational argument being made at the time. If you want to say most people didn't hear that, that's fine. But I did, I, I did hear the rational argument, and I don't think that it's fair to say that the only thing that George Bush 
said when he was trying to convince us to bail out the auto industry was that um, these poor people are going to be out of work. I do think that media stories tend to follow individual narratives, and so those were part of the part of the overarching story. But uh, but I understood that as we can pay some now and try to get it back, or we can pay some now and who knows what's going to happen. It was okay. rational. Okay, I can I can hear that with the following two caveats. Okay, that we might be able to prop up the industry and have less and have less of an impact that is negative or perhaps even a positive impact is called gambling. And well, no one is allowed to gamble with my money. That's number one. <laughs> and number two, I take vigorous objection that Obama, quote, got the money back, end quote, because it you are not taking into account and measuring the losses in investment and entrepreneurship that happened by people paying attention to how the government was printing money and having, um, what, well, printing money. And so the, um, what's it called? Quantitative easing. You're not taking into account right. the economic right. losses of investment, which no leftist ever does. All they say is this number and this number, look, the, the big government person made it work. And that doesn't take into account all the factors. Okay. And I will also say that that's my criticism of rationality writ large is that there's no such thing as rationality. <laughs> Say we're going to make rational decisions is irrational. Everything is a gamble, right? So that, I mean that's – economics are is built upon this idea of gambling. And, and so uh, my, my only point is that that was not the, – the argument that there are – these poor workers are going to be out of work and isn't it so sad for them Yeah, yeah. was I, not necessarily the – that wasn't what I was responding to in tra trying to make a decision on whether I, I believed it was a good policy. Right. I completely hear that and I would only say also that I wouldn't call all economics gambling. I would call economics the ability of an individual to have means over his or her own property and to take risk and to capture reward as he or she can – and as long as it's with his or her own property, then I don't have any problem with it. Yeah, but it's risk. It's risk. It's calculated risk. It's calculated risk, and it's understood best by the individual who is risking it, not the president in the White House saying we're going to bail this industry out and give huge parachutes in the financial situation to people who made the, the erroneous decisions. But Texas Hold'em is also calculated risk. That's right. And yeah, was, I'm, uh, yeah. To, to say we gamble now, you could say you gambled with federal money or other people's money. That's a different conversation. But sure. But the the calculus, the calculus was as ra was was more rational than. Poor Joe. There, there was more. Yeah. There was more going on, in, in including calculus, than just the idea that um, poor Larry is not going to have a job and his kids are not going to have right. shoes. I, I'll hear that. Right. I'll take your okay. point. Um. Listen, I really enjoyed this conversation. There, there are some ways in which you kind of talk me down a little bit, and I think this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I had – before we started this conversation, I was like, I'm not even going to put that in the show notes, the, the <laughs> book. Not only am I going to put it in the show notes, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to go buy the book. I'm going to throw away the receipt. <laughs> I'm going to go buy the text and read the text this time instead of listen to it in an audio format and see if I like it any better. I'm guessing that I'll have a, a single 
a single book burning ceremony afterwards, but I'll let you know. <laughs> Please do. I'll, I'll look forward to hearing about that. <laughs>